Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Hughes. Today, we'll be speaking with Liz Carlisle about her new book, Healing Grounds Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Dr. Liz Carlisle is Assistant Professor in the Environmental Studies Program at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's the author of Lentil Underground and co author with Bob Quinn of Grain by Grain and has written both popular and academic articles about food and farm policy, incentivizing soil health, and supporting new entry farmers. Welcome to the New Books Network, Liz. Great to be here, Susan. Great to reconnect. Well, let's jump in. Um, regenerative farming is really quite the buzzword these days about thinking about climate change and how we think about food systems. And I'm really um, but you add this layer that has not really been a part of the conversation, and it's very provocative. Um, before we jump in, can you say a little bit about, um, just so everyone understands, what what do we mean when we say regenerative farming, and what do people mean when they use that phrase? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I am very inspired by the idea that farming can be regenerative, that in the process of growing food, that farmers can also be doing ecological restoration. And I think the most basic thing that people mean and and a term, you know, that the thing people agree upon about this term is that we can draw carbon out of the atmosphere and suck it back into the soil, you know, working with the genius of plants and the process of photosynthesis and that there are techniques that farmers can use, techniques that add carbon to soil that both benefit the soil health of the farm. So the farm is more fertile and grows healthier crops. But also, if you think about it, the global scale help to balance the climate, help to balance the carbon cycle such that some of that carbon that's in the atmosphere that actually used to be underground <laughs> comes back underground. And you talk, you say something really interesting. You talk about the idea of soil as being a community can you say what you mean by that, about the richness and complexity of soil, which I think is not the way we're used to thinking about soil? 
Yeah, that's a great point because, um, you know, rainforest ecosystem, if you have, you know, the opportunity to go to Brazil or Indonesia is something you can see, you can walk through, you can see the interactions, you can see this incredible biodiversity of all these species that relate to one another. A soil ecosystem is also extremely biodiverse and dynamic and all of these interactions are happening among ecosystems you know, these ecological partners in the soil. Um, but because we as humans live above ground, <laughs> we don't witness that. We don't experience that necessarily in our day-to-day -day lives. But there is this extraordinary biodiversity um, among organisms underground, some of which are microscopic, some of which are actually large enough that you can see them. So maybe you've seen, you know, earthworms in your garden or something like that. They're part of that ecosystem. But all of those living organisms are actually, they are the living beings that are conducting the carbon cycle. So they are passing nutrients through their bodies and in the course of, um, you know, eating <laughs> and doing their metabolic processes, they are storing carbon in the soil and they are cycling carbon through this living ecosystem, as well as nitrogen, which is an underappreciated element that also um, contributes to greenhouse gases of concern. So basically, I think the bottom line is when that whole soil ecosystem is healthy and cycling carbon and nitrogen in the way that healthy soil organisms do, that better balances carbon and nitrogen so that they're not leaving the soil and going into the atmosphere. But something seems to be missing about the way we're talking about regenerative farming. And that is the piece you get into, which is, it's so timely and and really a very interesting, it's a, you give us this history of the U.S. and farm systems and this great insight into the injustice and how it's still affecting um, down to our food system, yet we haven't really made that connection so much with food in the U.S. Um, and you say some of the most profoundly influential land stewards are not even called farmers by the USDA Ag Census. And why is that? What, and it's almost like when you go on to interview um, farmers who are almost like pockets of resistance to dominant agriculture. And, and why are these um, food producers off the map? Yeah, it's a deep story. You know, if I had to summarize it in one word, I'd say colonization. Um, but yeah, you know, regenerative agriculture, it's often talked about like it's a new thing. And for many people who have, you know, grown up in agriculture in the United States, whose parents were sort of taught that fertility comes out of a bag, you know, that, that it's chemically generated, these ideas of, of planting soil building cover crops or applying compost or using more perennial plants, they are new to many U.S. farmers. But the ideas themselves are not new. And that was one of the primary things I learned in researching this book, is that Regenerative agriculture is rooted in the ancestral knowledge of indigenous communities and communities of color all around the world. Um, you know, these global indigenous communities have had agroforestry, have had um, buffalo prairies, have had polycultures, have had nutrient cycling practices where everything that comes out of the soil ultimately goes back to the soil. And, you know, that includes indigenous communities from the North American continent. It also includes indigenous communities that are in diaspora on the North American continent. 
through choice in some cases, but often not through choice. Africans who were brought here and enslaved, immigrants from Mesoamerica, from Mexico and Central America, whose own small farm livelihoods were disrupted by industrial agriculture and colonization, and so who who were economically forced to migrate to the United States to work as farm workers in the industrial agriculture that we have in the U.S. So this is why, you know, I love how you describe these pockets of resistance that regenerative agriculture in these indigenous communities and communities of color not only is it rooted in these long-standing ancestral traditions, but it's been continually refined and revitalized as a practice of resistance and survival in the face of this extractive agriculture that, that's been you know, part and parcel of a process of colonization that these communities have been resisting. Yeah, it's a very, um, it's, this, the, the history is ugly on many of the pieces that we learn about um, the racism that still pervades today. But it's also incredibly uplifting to hear these stories. And as I'm reading it and diff- all these different cultures across the U.S. And, and thinking about them, this web of very different approaches and different cultural backgrounds, but a very like, integrated, interconnected way of thinking about food systems. I mean, it was very... Uh, it, the book as a whole prevents a very uplifting story of these um, ways that people have managed to keep this connection to food and land. Um, and the first one you really talk to is and bring up is the idea of the buffalo. And you talk to Latrice Tatesy from the Blackfeet Reservation. Can you say a little bit more about um, about her story and her work with buffalo? Bison? Yeah. Yeah, Latrice really taught me how to think about regenerative grazing, which is a huge component of the regenerative agriculture movement. This idea that even though cattle, grazing animals, livestock have in many cases degraded landscapes, that um, people who manage livestock can flip the script by observing the way in which native herbivores have grazed and have moved across landscapes in North America and using that historical model to inform the way that you might rotate cattle. And the the sort of long story short is that buffalo, um, they don't just stay in one place and graze and graze and graze and graze. They graze heavily in one area, but then they move on. Buffalo move a lot when they graze. They graze over long distances and they graze selectively in a way that historically has created this diverse mosaic of vegetation across the North American prairie that in turn has created these ecological niches for a very biodiverse range of species, including birds and amphibians. And so this whole process has led to a very ecologically productive prairie historically that, among other things, stores a lot of soil carbon. And these uh, native plants that buffalo evolved with they evolved in response to this grazing behavior to apportion a great deal of their sort of productive activity into their roots. And it's those roots, uh, you know, deep rooted prairie plants that are storing all this carbon. So buffalo prairie ecosystems um, and the indigenous people who managed them were uh, just incredible carbon storehouses. And indigenous people actually amplified this grazing cycle using fire to bring those grasses back a little earlier in the spring in the areas where the buffalo would graze them and sort of amp up the productivity of the whole system even a bit more and the the carbon sequestration and the forage and all of that. 
So Latrice Tatsy, who's, who's really involved in the buffalo restoration movement at Blackfeet Nation, very active in helping to bring buffalo back to their native homelands, she shared all this with me from actually three perspectives. So, um, you know, she's a Blackfeet woman and she has this deep cultural relationship with Buffalo and she's been involved in her tribe's effort to restore a Buffalo herd and then even more broadly to restore free ranging Buffalo throughout their historical territory, partnering with national parks and the national forest and really wide range of, of partners. But then she's also a cattle rancher. Her family, um, like many indigenous families in the face of colonization, who were told, you know, you have to be, quote unquote, economically productive. Cattle ranching was in that context an adaptive practice that allowed indigenous people who had these deep relationships with land and with grazing animals to retain some of that relationship to land, even through this introduced animal So her family is one of those. And so she thinks about bringing buffalo back as a guide to how to do regenerative grazing, that if buffalo are there on the landscape, they can act as a teacher, as they always have, culturally speaking, to sort of show how to be in balance with that relationship because they've been there um, since time immemorial. And then she's also a scientist. She's finishing a graduate degree at Montana State University, and she's studying the soil ecological impacts of buffalo grazing. She's actually doing a comparison of buffalo grazing and cattle grazing in ways that she hopes will not only help to kind of bolster the buffalo reintroduction effort by showing what a benefit they have ecologically, but also to inform other cattle ranching families of how they can learn from those grazing patterns that buffalo use. Um, and and use, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways folks are using, um, you know, like electric fencing and things like that to to guide cattle <laughs> to learn those kinds of grazing patterns so that they leave an area alone for a little while and it rests and the vegetation grows back. Yeah, it's a really interesting story about how they make the prairie. And there's this reciprocity with the land and the plants and the animals. And you also touch on that about humans and plants. Yeah, I think it was a Robin Wall Kimmer talking about the reciprocity between humans and plants and 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 the plants almost respond to us. So the more there's there can be like um it doesn't have to be I think there's an idea in sort of Western agricultural tradition of like monoculture versus hands-off. And there's not this in-between this, you know, uh communication or uh partnership with plants. It's a really interesting idea that is core, I think, to most indigenous approaches. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit on it. Like that is why an indigenous led regenerative agriculture really does have the power to shift climate change because it's not just, oh, you know, we'll add a little no-till over here, maybe a cover crop over here. It's a different logic. It is about having a reciprocal relationship with land where things like compensatory growth of plants are possible versus an extractive relationship with land, which is the foundation upon which the dominant agriculture on this continent was built because it was built to serve a colonial economy. And so that's what has to be flipped. And it does have to, I think what's required to transition to regenerative agriculture is a shift in our society's relationship with land that does follow those indigenous teachings of needing to be in reciprocity of this continual mutual relationship that doesn't have an end, that that isn't about sort of taking something out of the land and then accumulating it somewhere else. 
that, that there's just this continual relationship and it involves giving back. You, there's really, you, you tell the really, um, I think unknown largely story of black communities in the U S and with food systems and farming and especially the reconstruction era systems that were, that were essentially recreating racist systems that existed during slavery. But then there's these stories of resistance you tell that I think are largely unknown that were really um, empowering to think about like the George Washington Carver story. I think we know, I think most of us learn in school about the peanuts, but, but this piece of, of him being like this regenerative farming maverick and brilliantly creative person that, that actually was able to, um, spread information that was really critical for Black liberation and um, self-sufficiency. Can you say a little more about George Washington Carver? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful because I think you're right. I think that the Black agrarian story has been suppressed. And um, Leah Penniman and Monica White have both written brilliant books in recent years. Monica's book is called Freedom Farmers. Leah's book is called Farming While Black. Um, Leah's actually editing a book that's coming out later this year as well um, that do trace this history of Black agrarianism and the regenerative traditions in Africa that have also been carried through the African diaspora to the Americas and then sustained throughout all of these various historical periods and this unfolding process of black liberation through um, you know, the abolition of slavery and the reconstruction period and the civil rights movement. And then ultimately movements that we see today, um, you know, running all the way up to um, you know, the movement for black lives, black lives matter. Um, that has been deeply in conversation with food justice and food sovereignty projects. Um, and George Washington Carver plays a really important role in this history. And I think his story helps demonstrate just how tightly connected the movement for black liberation is with the history of regenerative agriculture and, and even the whole idea of an agriculture that rejects chemicals, fossil fuel based synthetic chemicals being the basis of farming because George Washington Carver, he started his job at Tuskegee University just before the start of the 1900s. He he was just an extremely precocious scientist. He started as a professor really young. He taught like so many classes and ran a student farm. And when I look at like his job description, it just kind of blows me away. It's like, oh yeah, he's running the extension program and he does the campus farm. Oh, and he also teaches six classes. (laughs) Dang, that would bury me if I tried to do all that. But he did it. And, um, you know, at the time he started his job, it was actually pretty common for scientific agriculture to recommend to farmers that they sort of boost the fertility of the farm using biological methods, compost, soil building cover crops. That was something the USDA advised in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So when he started his job, he was kind of in line with what his colleagues were doing. But... You know, as we got into, uh, you know, the 1910s, the 1920s, scientific agriculture became deeply enamored of commercial fertilizer, um, which originally was not super sophisticated, but, you know, started to rely on chemical compounds and an industry developed around this. And it 
immediately became influential and it started funding grants at colleges, things that will sound very familiar to people 100 years later. And George Washington Carver just didn't get on the bandwagon from the beginning. He was like, I don't think that's actually as good as compost. You know, you're missing out on something. You know, it's, it, it may be delivering nitrogen, but it's not delivering organic matter. But the main reason that he resisted teaching his students to use commercial fertilizer was that he did run the extension program. He cared deeply about serving the black farmers near to, you know, in the region of Tuskegee, many of whom were sharecroppers, most of whom were sharecroppers, and who would have to go into debt to white planters to buy commercial fertilizers, which basically you know, if you've read anything about sharecropping, that was slavery in all but name, basically. These white planters keeping these black farmers in debt such that they they were there working the land and growing the crops basically indefinitely. And George Washington Carver, the whole reason he got into agriculture is because he believed it was his actual spiritual responsibility to participate in the uplift of black people. And so that's why he devoted his research program to compost is because not only did he see that it was delivering organic matter, not just nitrogen, but he saw that it was a way for black farmers to be more economically independent of you know, white planters and the whole white economic establishment in the South, that if they had a form of fertility that they did not have to pay uh, a white store owner for with money that they borrowed from a white planter, <laughs> that they could progress towards land ownership, towards more economic agency. And, and so, you know, we have to credit Dr. Carver with, um, you know, the early, early years of asking questions about whether chemical fertilizer is the best direction to go in agriculture. And I think we have to recognize that one of the primary reasons he was asking those questions is because he was interested in black liberation. Well, one of the people you interview in your book, Olivia Watkins, is made a choice to go into farming and is he's doing agroforestry, basically, and on family land. It's a really interesting story and it's very contemporary and touches on some of the uh, things that young people are thinking about as they're considering how they might go into farming and why, what motivates them. Can you say a little about like her story and um, her choices to go into agroforestry? Yeah, Olivia Watkins' story is just really remarkable, and I think there's so much to be learned from it. She, um, you know, she started studying soil ecology in college, and she got really, really excited about it. She did her thesis on um, sort of farm methods that build soil health, and she learned a lot about these um, incredible properties of soil at the microbial level that we've been talking about. And after college, even during college on her break, she would go and farm somewhere and just learn from the people that she was farming with. And, and after college, she ended up in Hawaii, um, farming, uh, where there were agroforestry practices. So there were row crops, um, being grown vegetables, um, in rows, but then there was another area of the farm where they were alley cropping, um, where they had trees interspersed with the vegetables. And she was interested to observe. She was like, dang, it's a lot easier to manage when you have trees around because every time there's a big storm, we don't have to worry quite so much about the fate of the vegetables because the trees provide some shelter. And she noticed the difference in the water cycle and just kind of planted the seed in her mind like, hmm, trees are a good thing to have on a farm. <laughs> 
And after that, she was thinking about, you know, as many young farmers do who've had a few years of training, you know, oh, maybe is there someplace I could get my own farm? And she was born and raised in, in New York. Um, and her family, um, you know, further back from that was from North Carolina. So anyway, she was, she was thinking about land and farming and, um, she also, she did a training at Soulfire Farm, which is uh, just a leader internationally in the food justice movement there in upstate New York. And they have this incredible regenerative farm that's all based in the Black agrarian tradition and regenerative agriculture methods of the African diaspora. They're doing all this great education for folks at, at all levels. So she went to a, a training there and really learned about the incredible tragedy of Black land loss that over the course of, you know, the hundred years between 1920 and now, 98% of black landowners, agricultural landowners have been dispossessed through a, a whole series of processes, including, you know, straight out violence and lynching and also financial racism and um, USDA discrimination and loan programs. And, as she's learning about this, she also realized that her grandmother, who was in her 80s, um, was uh, couldn't manage the land that her family had in North Carolina for much longer. And she learned about the history of this land, that they'd had this 40 acres of forested land that over the course of this, it, her great great uncle bought it in 1890, one of the first black landowners in, you know, it's now the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill region. And they managed to hang on to that land. And it wasn't easy um, in the face of, of the racism and the discrimination. And her grandmother was thinking she might have to sell it because there was nobody in the family ready to kind of take on the care of that land. And so Olivia, as she tells this story, it just brings tears to my eyes. She told her, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take this on. And she was in her 20s. Um, and, you know, at the same time, she recognized that this forest land, it had been such an important sanctuary for her family and for the Black community in the face of white racism. And at the same time, as the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area was urbanizing and so many plots of forested land, you know, the trees had been cut down. Where there were trees, there were often monoculture plantations that were used, you know, on an industrial basis for wood pellets or things like that. And she saw that the land was also a sanctuary for animals and, and soil carbon. It was a habitat. Um, and she wanted to, to conserve that. Um, she wanted to conserve forest and she wanted to conserve black owned land. And so she decided that the way she was going to grow food within that landscape was going to be forest farming. And so she's um, several times she's grown shiitake mushrooms in the understory. She's experimented with bees. Um, she's got ideas for other things she might do over the course of her lifetime. Um, but she's actually putting her energy right now into she's president of an organization called the Black Farmer Fund, recognizing that, you know, access to land and access to capital has been such a barrier for so many um Black families, um, Black individuals who who want to farm, who want to have a food-based business. So she's thinking at, at all these levels, from the forest to, uh, you know, structurally how we enable um, and how we reverse this horrible legacy of Black people having their land taken. 
she makes she um, talks about mycelium and makes this really beautiful connection with community and the web of life and interconnection. Can you say a little bit about mycelium? I think it's a little mysterious to many people what exactly it is and how it is functioning underground. Yes, yeah, I think that was a big part of why Olivia Watkins fell in love with soil ecology as a college student and you know pursued this path. She talked a lot with me about just how in awe she was of the workings of mycelium. So fungi as individual organisms, they have what are called hyphae. And these are sort of root-like structures. You can think about them that way, although they're very thin. They're much, much thinner than a plant root. They can go anywhere. (laughs) And so they can sort of Uh, scavenge throughout the soil for nutrients. That's their job. Just like a plant's root does that for a plant, um, hyphae does that for a fungi. But they don't do it alone. So particularly in a forest where both plants and fungi can stay in the same place and get comfortable for a while, because you have a lot of perennial plants, these individual hyphae from individual fungi they come together and form a sort of super organism called mycelium. So they actually make of their individual beings a common <laughs> being that has all these capacities that the individual organisms would not have on their own. And so this network of mycelium, they can go all throughout the forest underground, scavenging nutrients, communicating with each other about threats, disease, even deforestation. These networks of mycelium that attach to plants, that's like how trees quote unquote, talk to each other. There've been some amazing books about this recently. And so to Olivia, um, that was resonant for her of an African proverb that her father often reminded her of, which was, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. And so she sees this resonance between the way that mycelium work with fungi in a forest. And of course she grows mushrooms and she also stewards a forest. So she's got all kinds of mycelium going on. And these practices of of community economy and collaboration and cooperation that are very, very deep throughout the African diaspora and that she's working to foster not only through her own business, but even more so, I think, through the Black Farmer Fund and bringing, she's very intentional about not just funding individual Black farms, but bringing people together in these cohorts where they can build up their businesses cooperatively and create a shared economy of Black food and farm businesses that has this sort of um, shared resources, shared social capital, shared financial capital, so that everybody sort of goes further together. Yeah, there's a beautiful theme of as what's happening below ground starting to reflect that um, above ground in human communities. It's a really beautiful piece of the regenerative and indigenous practices. Well, another farmer you interview, um, Ide Guzman, also thinking about fungus. Can you tell us a little bit about um, about her work? Yes, Ide Guzman, also a huge fan of mycelia. <laughs> <laughs> she has just, um, she finished fairly recently a PhD at UC Berkeley, looking at the connection on farms between biodiversity below ground, these um, soil 
microorganisms that are so important to processes of carbon sequestration and other soil ecological processes. She wanted to see how that biodiversity was connected to biodiversity above ground. So the diversity of crops that farmers are growing. And she wanted to do this work in the Central Valley and her advisors, the, the research community, originally were like, uh, you want to do a story about agricultural biodiversity and you want to do it in the Central Valley? Where on earth are you going to find enough biodiverse farms in this, like, you know, the belly of the beast of monoculture to even have a statistically significant study? And she was like, they're there. Because she was born and raised in the Central Valley. Her parents, um, they they grew up on a biodiverse um, small family farm in Mexico. Because of these economic processes we talked about, they had to migrate to the United States and they worked in the Central Valley in industrial agriculture as farm workers. But she, you know, having grown up in that environment, she was connected to immigrant communities in the Central Valley. And she knew that there were other immigrant families who'd, who'd gotten a little bit of a foothold and were planting their cultural foods and were planting polycultures as their ancestors had done in Mexico or Central America or Laos, because she also knew the Hmong farming community who went to the same schools that she did. So, you know, as a PhD student, she... Um, she just drove. She, she drove down so many rural roads um, and asked people, you know, would you be part of this study? And she collaborated with over 30 immigrant family farms, most of which had sort of never been contacted by an agricultural researcher, recorded in the USDA census of agriculture. But what she found was she did this direct comparison of polycultural farms and monocultural farms that were growing the same crop. She focused on squash. And she found that those farms that were growing polyculture, they had two times as many are buscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are one of these below ground organisms that we think of as like an indicator of below ground biodiversity. And so, you know, she basically showed that yes, crop diversity above ground means you have the biodiversity below ground that's so important to soil carbon sequestration and the other kind of soil health processes that we care about. And all of that is fostered by cultural diversity, that these immigrants who have come to the Central Valley, despite all the kind of racist narratives she heard about immigrants growing up, and she certainly did, that, that the immigrants in the Central Valley, so many of them, they're actually bringing the soil back to life, um, that in such a fundamental way that immigrants are life-giving for the Central Valley. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could stress enough how much Central Valley is the epitome of monoculture. So to hear these stories and the rich diversity is is really mind-blowing, really. I mean, they are like pockets. And she even saw them that way, I think, on her data when she was tracking like these tiny blips of diversity in this these sort of sea of single-crop farms. Yeah, I, this I think when you talk about the indigenous Mesoamerican farmers, especially you know thinking about the cultural aspect, and you make this really interesting point about um, in traditional you know, Western white culture, making a home often means eradication, and that in a sense there's a completely opposite approach to creating a home 
is integrating with the life there to create sustenance and food and create and and also just the idea that creating food is beautiful and not you know in this culture it, it's it's like some of the worst work i mean it's just like the, the lowest work that could be done and it, it's like life-giving so can you say a little more about that and just how that kind of essence of uh regenerative farming from the cultural point of view is really um, exemplified by the indigenous Mesoamerican practices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, beautifully stated. And I think it just brings home for me that regenerative agriculture, if we really want to do it in a powerful way, it's not just about sort of technical aspects of shifting the way that we approach farming. It is about fundamental concepts like home and work. <laughs> and what do those things mean? And in reading about traditional agriculture in Mexico and in Central America, I was really struck by, for example, the, you could call them food forests of the Maya and how, um, you know, over many, many generations, they selected human useful plants within the rainforest in a way that did not disrupt the rainforest, didn't involve deforestation, but they co-evolved with the forest such that in places where there's this Mayan history, 90% of the plants in the rainforest are human useful. It's um, one of the folks that I was reading, um, I don't remember which scholar said this, but they said they transformed a rainforest into a food forest. <laughs> and, you know, similarly, um, you know, thinking about the way in which enslaved Africans planted these dooryard gardens around their residences, and, and you talk about like, like, yeah, food plants being beautiful, food plants being a part of home. You know, obviously there was a, something practically useful about that in terms of having subsistence food, but it was more than that. Like if you see Judith Carney's research is full of art of those dooryard gardens and they're beautiful. They're clearly a practice of making home even in the midst of this incredibly violent experience where people are trying to dehumanize you um, that plants are a way of saying, no, this is home. This is a place where I belong and a place where my agency and my humanity is going to find expression precisely through <laughs> my coexistence with plants. And then labor. I, I was so struck reading a book called Zapotec Science. It's about 20 years old now. It's written by a brilliant anthropologist named Roberto Gonzalez, who lived in a Zapotec village for several years and then wrote about their agriculture. And he went because they've had agriculture for 4,000 years in the same place. So, you know, that sort of begs the question, like, why isn't the soil used up? <laughs> what are they doing <laughs> to sustain agriculture in the same place for 4,000 years? Because U.S. agriculture is um, struggling after, um, you know, just a couple hundred here. Um, and, you know, he documented things like cover crops and compost and things that for folks who are in sustainable agriculture circles will be very familiar. But I think one of the most profound things that he observed was when he went around asking people if they were farmers, they kind of gave him this quizzical look. And the, you know, the Mexican state conducted a census where people had to give their occupation. And so he could kind of get that data. But he, when he asked people, like, how do you identify they were like well i mean everybody participates in the food system we call it mantenimiento 
and it, it means maintenance, but but there's more to it. You know, it has a connotation of basically care that everybody's caring for each other. People are caring for plants. Plants are caring for people. The community is caring for each other. And the whole community is participating in some way, whether you plant seed or you're a seed keeper who selects seed, or maybe you're involved in the work of planting the corn, or maybe you make tortillas. Um, But everybody is participating. And because everybody is participating and everybody expects that they're going to participate at some point in their life, one really important part of how the whole system is structured is to make sure the work is sustainable for people because everybody does it. It's not a job that you sort of say, oh, one to 2% of the population is going to do this. And it's like low class work. And we're even going to use it as a way to kind of mark certain groups of people as lesser than other people. If everybody's doing it, then you have things like in the Sapotec village, People all had tools that were tailored to their body, to their ergonomic needs. Uh, You know, the timing of things was such that people had diverse activities through the day and their tasks shifted with the season. And it was human bodies were integrated in the way of thinking about how this ecosystem was going to persist because it wasn't this class-based thing and it wasn't something to be relegated to a small percentage of the society. And that that really stuck with me learning about that as just a very different way to think about what the work of agriculture could feel like. Because I've had experiences in gardens that are super life-giving. And and people say, oh, well, yeah, gardens are fun, but, you know, farms, farm labor is hard work. That's oppressive. And I just resist the idea that it has to be that. And reading about that Zapotec village it was just wonderful to have a vision of a whole society that approaches its food system that way. Yeah, I mean, it's food is life. So it really, it doesn't, isn't separate. There aren't certain, it's just part of everyday life. It's beautiful. You've mentioned a few examples of how that cultural aspect is reflected in language. Like, I don't remember which culture it was that doesn't really have words for weeds or, um, that, or pests. But then that there's, is it the mind language? It has like 60 words for soil explanations. Yeah. Something we couldn't even imagine in our, in this culture right now, like can, can someone even describe 20 ways of talking about soil, even just with adjectives, let alone its own word? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's really striking. All of those examples come from Mesoamerica um, and from the agroecology tradition and people interviewing um, indigenous farmers in in different parts of Mesoamerica. And I think what was striking to me about um, that idea of an indigenous culture having 60 different words for soil that comes from Devin Pena's work is that he wasn't talking about just people who identify as scientists, you know, because people who identify as soil scientists in this culture, they have a lot of specialized words, (laughs) mollusol, you know, ultasol, all that stuff. But your average person on the street, if you were to walk up to them and be like, hey, is this a mollusol? They'd be like, you got the wrong person. You know, I'm not a soil scientist. And so just the idea that that would be part of like an everyday lexicon, that that's just part of being human, that you would know your soil relatives um, and that you would be able to Put your hand in the earth, feel, smell, look at color and texture and say something about what kind of soil that was, what kind of plants might live there, um, whether it had been well cared for, whether it needed care. Um, That just 
that's a different orientation of a society to think about that as a life skill the way you might think about you know knowing how to use a laundry machine or going to the grocery store just knowing how to evaluate soil and know what you should do to care for it or what you should grow there that food production food systems are completely embedded in everyday life and are like very culturally sophisticated in a way that we in this current culture have not quite figured out but thankfully there are these pockets where it is happening and and i think for the regenerative food movement you end by talking with um stephanie morningstar and how you had this conversation what is the actual work then for the regenerative food movement in the u.s right now and she says it's it's ancestor work and what how would you explain that or how would you explain that to people doing regenerative food work right now? What is that? What could that look like? Ancestor work. Yeah, that was such a powerful moment in my conversation with Stephanie. And she followed that by saying, we're all doing ancestor work, not just indigenous folks, not just black folks, not people of color. For all of us, this is ancestor work. And I think one of the primary ways I understood that is looking at the lineage that we each come from honestly and understanding how we're positioned and how we're situated and what kind of trauma might be in our background um, what kind of structural violence might be in our background that you know in the case of myself as a white person i have a responsibility to leverage the privilege the benefits that have come of the structural violence that was done you know not with my consent but in a weird way like on my behalf because i receive benefits from being white because of colonization even though i didn't ask for them but also and i know your work um really deals with healing and what it means to be well and whole susan and I think it's also when she says, you know, ancestor work, it's also about, you know, even if you come to trying to heal processes of colonization from a place of privilege, it is also about a kind of personal healing of feeling whole and feeling in right relationship to the land and the people around you. Um, No matter what background you have, we have different work to do depending on, you know, what our ancestors, how they were positioned, what might be in our background. But I think we have a common interest in moving from an extractive agriculture and an extractive society to a more reciprocal and healing mode of being with one another. And so, you know, Stephanie's organization does the work of of land justice, Um, the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. They recognize that 98% of agricultural land is white owned, that that many, if not most indigenous communities don't have access to most, if not all, their traditional territory. And so they're a a land trust um, that tries to help, you know, get that land access for indigenous communities and farmers of color and then help them develop legal agreements that can restore some of their traditional land relationships in which land is not owned, land is not property within a Western framework. So cultural respect easements and MOUs and ways of, of, um, you know, stating and committing to a reciprocal relationship with land that can sort of be seen within this Western context. 
So I think, you know, politically and structurally, land justice is a really important part of that ancestor work. And those of us who are white and who are part of that 98%, even if it's not us personally, but people who look like us, I think we can participate politically in just standing up for the need for land justice as part of any kind of serious regenerative agriculture. Um, And then I think, you know, at a deep level, it is about shifting our society's relationship with land from that extractive colonial history and all the ways in which that legacy can show up in our daily lives on even like on next door, you know, when somebody's talking about X, Y, Z thing is going to like, you know, ruin the property value, (laughs) just, you know, changing our thought about how we relate to land to this more reciprocal, cooperative relationship with the living relative that gives us life without which we don't even exist in a sense. I think that's that's maybe the most profound piece of that work. Yeah, it's beautifully put there in conservation world, the, the shift in thinking about land and ownership models. This There's been a sudden movement. I, I hope that momentum keeps moving forward and rethinking ownership and what is ownership anyway. Um, and I think you make a good point about our personal relationship too. And I think it's worth noting sometimes when we talk about indigenous cultures, there can be a romanticization, especially for white people thinking about other cultures. And I think it's important to have an honest looker to tell your own food story and to really look at who you are and what is your background with food and to not project onto other cultures. This can be very easy, but to really like own your own food story, you know, what is it and what do you want it to look like in your family? I think there's wonderful personal work we can do too and political. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today, Liz. It's been really uplifting to hear more about ancestral food systems and the ways we can restore our communities and relationships to the land through food and farming. I'm Susan Gerlach-Yusum, and this is the New Books Network. I've been speaking with our guest, Liz Carlisle, about her new book, Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. We hope this conversation has helped to spark new understanding of regenerative farming and that you will dig into Liz's insightful new book to learn more.